Anyway, I turn around and the uh, the half the panel is gone. How are you guys doing today? I I think it's safe to assume that uh, about uh, half of uh, everybody in here, to include myself, feel like these poor ATATs here about to collapse. But I I genuinely appreciate you guys coming out Monday morning. Um, how many for you guys out of the crowd is this is their first DragonCon? That's awesome. You guys having a good time? You gonna come back? Enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> it's Monday morning. Yeah. So yeah. That's understandable. You want any of us to have enthusiasm? <laughs> <laughs> More caffeine. Here at all. Yeah. <laughs> Good on you guys. Well, I want to welcome you guys to talk the military and politics of Star Wars. I think that uh, that Rebels trailer was enough to give us material for the entire hour, but we're <laughs> going to cover quite a bit of ground here. Um, without further ado, I want to go through our panelists. It's going to be alphabetical, so we're going to jump around. But first, Bethany Bland, go ahead and introduce yourself. That's just, you know, mean to people at the end of the alphabet. I just want to say. <laughs> <laughs> is, this first, alphabetist. is this first name or last name alphabetical? Your last alphabetist. name. Okay. Oh, okay. Hey, everyone. My name is Bethany Blanton. Uh, I do work with the Star Wars Report, and I'm also a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. We have another Blanton on stage. Hi, I'm Brandy. I'm not related to Bethany, but I'm actually just meeting her. We didn't even talk before the panel. Um, I uh, am currently unemployed. I just finished my master's degree in uh, the relationship between Star Wars and terrorism and extremism with a focus on Rogue One. That When when you were on the list uh, for panel, it threw me off because I was like, oh, Bethany's on the panel. And I was like, wait a minute. She has a sister that we never knew about. <laughs> Andy? Like Luke. <laughs> Ooh, I, I just realized I'm wearing my Star Wars, one of my Star Wars shirts in this picture. I didn't notice it before. <laughs> my name's Andy Dykes. I'm a rocket scientist flying satellites for Intelsat in, uh, in Washington, D.C. I worked at NASA for about five years, and I worked at Space Camp for three years before that. Um, this is one of those things where you, 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 you're a big fan of a thing, of a fandom, and then you come to Dragon Con, and you're all of a sudden like the guy who knows the least in the room. So, and I'm never, it's never that way at home, so this will be interesting. Bria? Hi. Ooh, you gave me a Fairno squad. Thank you. Um, <laughs> hi, my name is Bria Lavornia. I am the managing editor at Tasha Station. Uh, as far as my political military friends. I don't have military friends. Uh, but I was one of those nerds who watched The West Wing as a child, and I went, I want to do that! And then over the last four years, I've discovered it's not actually like The West Wing. Um, but I work, I'm a, I've been a contractor at a government organization for the last three years. I just switched to another government organization, and yes, we're all cagey like this. <laughs> and she's also Star Wars canon. That's true. She made me a Star Wars. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Janine. Uh, hi, I'm Janine Spunlove. I'm a pilot in the United States Marine Corps, and I um, also am an author, and uh, most recently, I haven't written anything in the last two years. My 24-hour-a-day job keeps me very busy. Mm. <laughs> um, it's just really picked up the last couple of years. Um, but uh, my most recent thing that I've written, I did a, a short story for Star Wars that uh, if you bought uh, Battlefront, the Twilight Company novelization in paperback, uh, my short story is at the back of that called In Brief. So. I'm Thomas. I'll be driving this train today. Hopefully uh, 
only derailing it a little bit. Um, I'm an Army JAG officer, along with my wife, who's in the crowd. Uh, we're both captains. Uh, real life, I defend soldiers in courts martial, folks that are accused of criminal stuff. Uh, on the Star Wars side, I podcast and write for a site called The Legal Geeks, where we break down... Really, we just invent legal issues in stuff like Star Wars. <laughs> like, what if what if Darth Vader got tried for war crimes? Like, what would his defense be? You know, so uh, that sort of stuff. But uh, anyways, happy to be here. So, thank you. We also put together this really awesome show, so enjoy this. <laughs> so we got Rogue One. How many folks out here liked Rogue One? They're all good people. <laughs> but I think, I, you know, I, I can't think of a more appropriate vehicle to, to kind of launch into a discussion because it showed us a lot that we maybe just had to guess at as far as the military and politics uh, essence of Star Wars. And I don't, you know, when we talk about this, I don't want to specifically just talk about the movie, but what it represents, the doors that it opened up uh, in the universe. I want to first talk about the folks that really matter which is the Empire. <laughs> and I, I just want to play a quick clip because I want you to visualize with this black slide up here what comes to mind when you think the, the military of the Empire and not General Wright. <laughs> So, other than an affinity for triangles, like very large triangles <laughs> with circles on top, the first question that I want to throw out to you guys to, to bat around is, as we come into Rogue One, militarily, where's the, where's the Galactic Empire? Where have they, where's, where's the Emperor guided this, uh, this massive force? Why is it really... <laughs> Just looking down at all of our military folks it's here. Stable, that's why. Um, honestly, you know, you played that clip, and the first thing that came to my mind, and maybe this is where my head is lately. Um, so I should also clarify, I, I am a pilot for the Marine Corps, um, but uh, three months ago got... Uh, just because of the point I am in my career. I've been in 17 years, so the point I'm in in my career, my rank, um, and what I'm doing, um, I'm now on the Commandant's... Um, think tank so he's the he's one of the joint chiefs and so my job now which is very weird uh, is to think about things all day and sometimes <laughs> write about them um awesome. so that's good like i think about everything and so and so now i'm trying to look and think about things differently so you played that clip and literally the first thing i thought about is oh gosh that is a logistical nightmare <laughs> like, <laughs> not just like where they put all this stuff like that's fine because i was thinking fleet and all that but then i was thinking about how much they need, like how much just food, Support, just yes. food mm -hmm. they've got to get out. The logistical tail for the for the Imperial fleet is a nightmare. Which then, of course, made me think of um, the book that E.K. Johnson just wrote um, about Ahsoka. Uh, Thank you, Assist Monday, uh, Ahsoka, <laughs> and how you know some people might have been like, why is she writing a story about a you know planet that's basically getting strip mined for food mm -hmm. when 
course, I was like, of course, there's like a bajillion planets that have to be getting stripped mined for food because how else can you support this? There's just, it's crazy. I, I don't even want to, it's actually making my head hurt thinking of <laughs> Did any of you guys, it, that touches on a really good point. Did any of you guys, or, or for those in the audience, read uh, Catalyst, the Rogue One lead up novel? Yes. yes. And if you haven't read Catalyst, sure. you need to read You it. need to read Catalyst. <laughs> So I, I think that Catalyst makes a, a great point. One of the, the underlying sort of plot arcs in that story is not just Krennic's effort to get the Death Star built, you know, his pet project that he stole from Poggle. <laughs> but it's it's the idea, how, how can they construct this massive, you know, system of a, of a weapon, right? Well, they have to get materials from somewhere, and it's not like worlds are just willing to cough up these resources willingly. And so you see this shell game where... Uh, you know, Krennic is bringing in weapons through smugglers. The Empire happens to show up and say, hey, you got weapons on this planet that you know, maybe was po- uh, previously protected environmentally, and we're going to strip that, and we're going to take all your resources now. So I appreciate it. <laughs> and the, the Thrawn novel touches on that, too, the most people. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was a big subtext of the, of the novel, which was good. Actually, when you brought up logistics, makes me think, you move from a clone army to one where you actually have to like treat them like people and pay them. Ish. So, like, <laughs> like so the logistics of I mean, the logistics there of like having to pay everyone because I mean it's seen like for a lot of uh, you see in Lost Stars it's sort of seen as a way to get off of your back world planet and maybe have like a better chance in life. So where did that money come from? So we see that in you know, I feel like I don't want to dominate the panel, but we see that in uh, our statistics and, the, and where and how we recruit. Um, I obviously know the Marine Corps' numbers the best, but uh, for example, 57% of the Marine Corps comes from 11 states. Um, hmm. And there are definitely certain demographics that are targeted, um, and a lot of people will go into the military to because they know it is a it is a it is a way and not with the intent of making a career but to just go in for four years because it is a way and a means to either as my daughter put it because she was looking at joining the air force and we asked her you know hey why you know you've never expressed uh, you know thoughts on the military and she said because i view it as a way where i have a safe space to finish growing up because she, you know she's going to be 18 and and so you go and you join the military and you have food you have a place to live and and you have some money. It's not a lot, but it's some. And, and those basic needs are met, so the money really is just yours. And so you look at the different economies and, and look at our own history here in the States. And while we, there's a reason why the military industrial complex is such a big, powerful uh, part of our economy, because it really does, and it's awful to say that war really does stimulate our economy, but it really does. So. The way these guys are doing is clearly they're just stripping it from a bunch of planets, but by doing that, it is generating more taxes, more income, and more ways to pay these folks. So it it is a big economic boost to the Empire to have such a big fleet, um, but there is a point where you're going to get your law of diminishing returns, and they're going to get too big and too unwieldy, which I think we kind of see in Return of the Jedi is the culmination. Mm. Well, yeah, and... and um... Remember, uh, we'll, we'll we'll pretend. Um, uh, the, one of the things that I was always fascinated with was in Return of the Jedi when uh, the Emperor dies, everything falls apart, and you don't really. I mean, the timing is interesting, but then you find out later, not in the movie, but elsewhere, that the Emperor was holding it all together because, like you say, the logistics—not just the support logistics, but the um, what am I looking for? 
the strategic and tactical logistics are incredible as the as the empire and the navy kept getting bigger and bigger, both in numbers and size of ships and people involved. So yeah, and that's a good that's a good segue. I went. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go, go. Oh, that's that's a classic leadership mistake, which mm, is mm-hmm. it having everything depend on you. Because what happens if you get shot and killed? You need to be then, training your replacement. Yeah, you always you always, always have to be training everyone beneath you, and that's one of the biggest imperatives that the military gives its leaders is. You have to keep training yourself, and you have to keep training your people, always. Well, and the person he was training just happened to throw him down a well. <laughs> We're going to get to questions at the end. So if you can if you can hang on to it, we'll do like 10 oh, minutes. You are so in the military. You've got a PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> just wait for the flow chart at the end. <laughs> I'm going to get the approved PowerPoint template. I really need to be clear on this. That's right. That's right. So the slide that's that's up right now is, is very hard to read, I understand, but uh, I, I use it to draw some comparison to, to ask the next question, which is um, we hear a lot about the uh, the empire. You, you, you fight the last war. Is when the emperor when the empire gets into Rogue One, is their fleet? Is their military? Are they have they learned lessons from the Clone Wars? Or are they fighting the Clone Wars again? Are they are they arming themselves for the last war? I think they've learned some lessons in the sense that. They take great pride in pointing out that, uh, it, it, at least in The Force Awakens, they take great pride in pointing out that they train their men very carefully. Mm. You know, when they're... When they're yeah, since <laughs> that. <laughs> and, but I, I think that they, they're, they're still relying on the giant weapons, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's just not working for them. It's just not... Bigger and bigger. Yeah, I, I think you you see that because what you know what comes to mind when you think of the Clone Wars, or you, to me, it's it's the first five to ten minutes of Revenge of the Sith, where it's just that Battle of Coruscant, where it's just huge sl- ships slugging it out um, above the above the planet, and to me, the Empire the Empire is just kind of taking that and expanding it, right? You know, the the idea of this this Death Star is that a that's sort of the culmination of this big ship mentality that we see. I mean, is this an idea that was destined to fail or something that kind of, you can argue made sense. And and it's weird actually, when you think about the incredible amount and duration of uh, Palpatine's um, forethought and, and insight and ability to see the future to a degree, how you could make the same mistake twice, three times. However, you know, Okay, we'll give him two. Yeah, how do you make the same mistake twice? Right, because it would. Right. Well, Brandy, I, I wanted to put yeah. this question to you because um, the the idea behind this Death Star is the the doctrine of fear, right? So the mm-hmm. idea that you can terrorize folks into submission. Okay. You know, from from your background, the stuff that you worked on in your masters, does that make any sense whatsoever? Um, I definitely think it does. Uh, one of the things that I talked about uh, in my dissertation was the idea of like total war and asymmetrical warfare. Um, which is basically the idea of a, a very dominant force, the Empire, fighting uh, a much smaller force, the Rebels, um, and kind of trying to use uh, that more dominant power to you know, intimidate them um, and make them fearful of what's potentially going to happen. Um, that's kind of what I see uh, happening in Rogue One uh, when we have the destruction of Jeddah City. They're trying to use that, you know, that fear uh, to get the Rebels to... Uh, cooperate with them in the future. That was a mining disaster. I think we yeah. all got yeah. that. Yeah. Not definitely, definitely not the Death Star. 
So I, I just wanted to touch, you know, there's a grain of, of truth in, in everything within Star Wars. And, you know, anybody that wants to chime in on, on this piece of it, the, the idea of bigger is better has been ingrained in militaries across the world for the entirety of, of, of history, specifically with ships. That's just what comes to mind when I think Star Destroyers. I mean, these are some great examples from, from all periods, from you got the big ships down there, uh, the ships of the line, uh, the largest warships of the sailing era. Uh, you got the HMS Dreadnought in the top right, a modern day battleship top left, and then the ironclads from the Civil War. Janine, you look like you got no, something. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to set it up and then toss it to you guys. I mean, you know, is this a, uh, is this a fair parallel? It is, uh, though I will say, um, without getting too into the weeds, um, <laughs> that actually is, that mindset is changing. Um, we are definitely the, the Military is definitely shifting to a more how can we be lighter and or at least the Marine Corps we want to figure out how we can be lighter and more expeditionary and because I mean that's definitely what we're known for getting in getting out very quickly and, and you know hitting you with a one-two punch being that 911 force um, so the more we can lighten the loads of our Marines and the more that we can get in quickly and get out quickly hence switching to the V-22 Osprey instead of you know, the CH-46 um, and, and things like that. The, as far as our ships are concerned, it is less about size and more about having the correct number to, be careful my phrases, to do the things that we need to do. <laughs> Victory! If there are certain things that, that we are needed to do, and in order to do those things, we need a certain number of ships of the certain type of ships. And you don't necessarily need 15 aircraft carriers. You probably need one and then a few big decks and then the right number of escort carriers and then the right number of submarines doing their things. So it's less about size and, and quantity. It's more about the right quals, the right, quanti- right quality, and, the, and just, just the right mix for the specific things. Or just one Death Star. And a big massive weapon like that would absolutely not be at all what we need. Yeah. Or at least not the way that we our current plans for things go. Yeah. So is it possible we learned lessons from, you know, a well, it, it, of, it, it, you know it, one X-Wing? It's not, <laughs> it's not even necessarily learning lessons so much as just the way we fight. The way we fight now is so very different than the way we fought um, in any of these times. Shoot, even even 20 years ago, we changed the way we fought just uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan during the course of those wars. And so the, the really interesting thing about Star Wars for me is to watch it and be like, this is a very interesting take on a space version of World War II because the reason why I really liked Rogue One is Rogue One was a lot closer to what we saw in more of our modern wars as far as the, the insurgency type things and the small groups um, out there doing that urban terrain style of, uh, of battle and fighting and, and just the, the coordination and all that. Um, whereas the, the classic original trilogy is a whole lot more just those big epic World War II style battles. And so um, that is not at all the way our technology is leading us and, and, and how our fights are going to go right now. I mean, who knows in, in 10, 20 years? I guess that's one of my jobs to start thinking about. 
That's probably boring, so we'll, we'll move on. No, it's a really great point. And for those of you who don't know, when Lucas was filming or when they were filming A New Hope, you know, the initial cuts of the Battle of Yavin, he wasn't satisfied with the, the dog fighting. You know, the, the uh, modelists, everybody was trying to, to visualize what was in his head. He had them sit down and watch video of dog fighting from, uh, you know, air-to-air combat from World War II. And that's what uh, that's directly tied to the visuals that you see on the screen. Ryan Johnson, when you when he listed out the movies to watch uh, as his influences for uh, The Last Jedi, he talked about 12 O'Clock High, right? So a dog fighting World War II movie. And that and that kind of fighting only happens when you have peers or near peer um, belligerence and Sorry, the rebellion is not even is not even remotely a near peer. So it, it's interesting to see. <laughs> it's not just technology; it is is the ability to to mass your weapons, and so the amount that the empire has. Just, so it, it's very. It takes definitely tact the way that they bring everything into the fight and, and stuff like that. So they're Can not speaking to the microphone. Sorry. They're not a uh, oh okay. They're not a near peer. The the rebellion is nowhere near a, a near peer to the empire in, in just straight numbers and and maybe starfighter technology, but not technology on the whole. Not weaponry, not anything like that. But through very clever writing and us pressing the I believe button and just the way things fell out, they were able to have battles like that. But which is why movies like Rogue One are good because I think it shows the reality of just how outmatched the rebels are because they really are. So let's. We, we talked a little bit about the uh, the leadership scheme, the politics. I want to talk about imperial politics and play this clip to kind of set it up. My apologies. You do have a great many things to say. I delivered the weapon the Emperor. I deserve an audience to make certain he understands its remarkable potential. Its power to create problems has simply been confirmed. Move to his center. Between Rebels and Rogue One, and, and then the, the materials, the books and stuff that have accompanied them, a really interesting look at imperial politics. And I think a lot of it has to do with what you guys touched on before, which is the structure of their, their leadership, how they achieve their rank. What is inherently problematic to you guys with, uh, with the way the Empire is set up? It's, it's fear. It's everybody is either too afraid to contradict each other until they're selfish enough to get to the point where for personal glory, they'll do something and then they die. So, <laughs> but it, whenever you set up a, uh, okay. So this wonderful person right here seriously outranks me. 
But if she's not willing to listen to anything that I have to say because of that, then yeah, she should be fired. No offense. <laughs> but, and, and you have that issue going on with the Emperor, with Darth Vader, with Krennic, with all of these head Imperials. It's, it's kind of like they're, they're running on the hero syndrome of I'm here and I can do everything because I'm the best. And then when they're not the best, everything falls apart. It's a lot of ego. And also what always I found peculiar is how the military and the politics are very intertwined. Um, So if you read Thrawn, like Governor Price does not have a military background, but she's governor and she's there in an Imperial officer uniform. She's the one in that bottom picture on the right side. The The governor of Lothal. Yeah. Um, which I just always found very peculiar, especially when you go back to Tarkin, how he's a Grand Moff, but he's also the governor of the system. Um, so weird. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll be, rank of Moff is I'm weird. in the 501st. I'll tell you, Imperial ranks straight up suck. They don't make sense. Uh, the rank bars can go die. Um, but the, just that intertwining was always very peculiar to me. Like, where does Krennic fall in this? He has what, in theory, is like an Admiral rank bar on him, but he's a director. Like who? So it's an interesting. Um, so I also, in addition to what I do, I I spent three years on Capitol Hill as the deputy director of the Marine Liaison Office. So for three years, I wore civilian uh, attire every day and represented the Marine Corps to Congress. Um, so it, it is not so different. Um, you know, we have our four-star generals in the military, but every elected official, you know, a member of Congress or senator is the equivalent of a five-star. And that's that's how they fall in the order of things. Yeah. So they don't run around in a uniform. Yeah. And this is a this is an extreme. This is a different society. This is an extreme take on that. But that's not so different from our own. Um, not so different from our own setup that we have here with the what I think is a very important civilian oversight of our military. I think the uh, the the interesting exception to to and you know, you know you're talking about fear of, of reprisal and and fear of, of loss of glory. Thrawn is like the one exception to the whole thing. Like he's got his motives and they're not that at all. But when you don't listen to Thrawn, you know, things go badly. Yeah. So, and I mean, that's not to say that you can't, so when I fly with my air crew, I've got, you know, from a private in the back who's, you know, my load master to my co-pilot who will be a lieutenant and, and then my crew chief who will be like a gunnery sergeant. And I outrank them all. And when we have something going on or whatever, I ask everybody, okay, and I already have in my head what I think we're going to do. Um, whether it, if it's an immediate emergency, we, I deal with it immediately. But if it's something like, hey, the landing gear's not coming down and we got five hours of gas, so we're going to sit here and spin <laughs> circles in the sky, well, which really has happened. And we're going to figure out what's wrong. Well, guess what? I am not an expert on landing gear. My crew chief is. So I'm going to say, hey, guys, what do you think we should do? And, you know, we got the NATOPS manual. We're looking at it. And I listen to all of them. Ultimately, it's still my decision as the as the aircraft commander and as the senior ranking person. It is still ultimately not my decision. I am a moron if I don't listen mm-hmm. to that junior person, especially if they're subject matter expert. But at the same time, they're very young and they don't have necessarily the experience and, and stuff. So there's that balance of, yes, I will listen to you because I'm a good leader. But also, I am still ultimately responsible for every single decision made on this aircraft. And if something bad happens... Even if it was your idea, I'm still the one who is responsible for it. So there is that fine line. Mm. The Empire has taken it to a really, really, really crazy degree here, mm. obviously. But, this unhealthy command climate. I felt but, like, like Lawrence a colonel, and apparently that's... I'm not a colonel. 
No, he got demoted yeah. coming into the uh, into the <laughs> empire. No, Brady, I, I want to toss this question to you. So we we talked about signing. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I talk about civilian leadership, this yeah. kind of you know power center with the emperor, and and I think Janine makes a great point about listening to subordinates. What's mm-hmm. what are your issues with the emperor at the top of the heap? I mean, obviously he's a great boss, and uh, <laughs> he, he, he is a he is a great product salesman for Nivea for men. But what do you, <laughs> what do you think of him at the he top? He was a great boss for Thrawn. So part of uh, one of the issues that um, I know, and part of what I did in my research was I did like a discourse analysis of Rogue One, and I looked at sort of the dialogue, like I did a ling- linguistical analysis and looked at the dialogue that they used, um, and that there was a lot of like, most of the dialogue that came from the Empire's point of view was all about like, sir, and military command, and there wasn't a lot of this like, bottom up sort of situations like we talked about, and you talked about listening to subordinates, there's not a lot of that in the Empire. Um, Palpatine's kind of like sitting up on his throne, he does it his way, and he's not listening to those underneath him, and I think that's definitely the most problematic part uh, about leadership. When I think one of the, the things that jumped out to me was there's no merit-based system in the Empire that is, is really well-rooted. Everybody's jockeying for position. That's why I, I chose those two clips, because Krennic is the epitome of, of just trying to curry favor with the Emperor. Tarkin is probably better at it, more suave, but, you know, you read... There's just this class, a couple classic scenes in the Catalyst novel where Krennic goes straight to Masamita, so the Emperor's blue vizier that you see in Revenge of the Sith and Attack of the Clones, and he's asking for a promotion. He's like, I deserve to be a rear admiral, mm-hmm. so like a, the equivalent of a one-star general, right? And Masamita's like, oh, I don't know, you get to be director of what? <laughs> and uh, and then you see it there with Constantine. So, you know, the Grand Admiral Thrawn came out of nowhere, uh, get, gets appointed to the Imperial Academy at Coruscant by the Emperor himself, and then within just a couple years is Grand Admiral. Meanwhile, Constantine has been sitting there playing the political game his entire military career and watching this happen. And it all comes to a head, a really glorious head in that <laughs> battle above Adalon in the Rebels clip, where Constantine's like, nope, this is my chance to impress the Emperor and get my due I'm going to get my white tunic uniform. And then Commander Sato comes in and, and splits his ship in half. So, uh, you know, it, it, it causes some really deep-seated problems. And the Emperor doesn't seem to recognize or care that this is an issue, right? He likes this jockeying for power. He likes folks coming to him and, and having to beg and grovel. So I want to keep moving to the Rebel Alliance, right? So we see quite a bit and, and quite a contrast in the Rebel Alliance between the, the films and... Uh, and uh, quite frankly, the, the Rebels TV show. And I want to play this clip to kind of set it up, set the, the difference up here. We hereby resign from the Senate to fight for you, not from the distant halls of politics, but from the front lines. We will not rest until we bring an end to the Empire, until we restore our Republic. Are you with me? Whoops. We got one. So that 
that scene, I'm just going to leave that shot up there. It, it's significant. That's one of the first times you see, you know, most, if not all, of the, the fleet assembled, right? So Mon Mothma in that episode has defected How from the set. How do they know where to go? <laughs> or, or the precise place to come to. get to there. And how'd they get there so fast? Were they all in the same place at the same time? <laughs> Waiting? The, the detailed science talk I have questions! <laughs> Those are all of my questions. No, so... No. So what what is the what is the Rebel Alliance doing differently? What is Rogue One Rebel showed us that uh, that distinguishes them here? So I I uh, we were talking about uh, this before um, Dragon Con, but I felt that it's interesting that you could probably sum up not only some of the problems in that you see in Rogue One with the Alliance, but also you know today with in here in our galaxy. Um, that uh, lack of foresight is actually a thing. And while Mon Mothma, you know, and Leia and, and those folks are, they're like, we gotta, we gotta do this thing. Then they get, they build a new political system and that political system, guess what, lacks foresight. Because, you know, there's the request, we need to go to um, Scarif, right? And and nobody can make it, they can't agree to, uh, to go because they're scared. It's that fear thing again coming in and maybe causing some lack of foresight. Well, it's good that we had Jen. So that's very close to actually how our, our politics work now. Um, <laughs> our it, And it's actually very, very frustrating in the military because we have to be thinking about what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You know, we're trying to plan the, the fleet for 2040 and we can't even get a budget passed this year to do the stuff we needed to be building last year because on the Hill, everything changes literally minute to minute and because the majority of those folks particularly the members of uh, the house of representatives which get reelected every two years they're absolutely beholden to their constituents and they're the people who write the budget they come up with the budget and nothing is going to move until they move it <laughs> meanwhile we have to hope and pretend and wonder what we're going to get and build a force on so it's very frustrating and very much at odds which is exactly what you see in rogue one mm -hmm. And you basically saw a bunch of folks, because this is kind of a willy-nilly haphazard group at this time, just go, F you guys, we're going to do what we want. <laughs> and thankfully, it worked out. But that minute-to-minute, -minute, the way they worked that minute-to-minute -minute planning worked out on the backside, too, because that's how they could just drop everything and run out there to support them. I think it's interesting the change we saw and how the Rebel Alliance was formed from Legends to what they did in canon now. Mm. Uh, so you went from the declaration of, I can't remember the actual title, Thank you. Yeah. No, no, not that. Uh, in Legends, there was like the Declaration of the Rebel Alliance, which if my uh, co-editor Nancy was here, she'd be reciting it right now for all of you. Um, but you went from that, that like uh, Mon Mothma, Bail Organa, and then Garbella was signed. So it was more of a unified re uh, Rebel Alliance at the start to instead, yes, you did have the delegation of the 2000. And you sort of see that was just one small group of all the groups that eventually become the Rebel Alliance. Because the big thing what they did in Rebels was they wanted to sort of emphasize, uh, for lack of a better term, that cell structure. Um, so you didn't see X-Wings originally because they were always a different group. The Y-Wings went to a different group with the Rebellion. Um, and then you also have a group like the Partisans, which aren't really what the Rebel Alliance wants to be about. So you get to see more diversity. And it, I, to me, it makes more sense that you see the small groups pop up where they do, and eventually they are tied together by something like this declaration. Brandy, I wanted to, to put this question to you. Uh, 
this this cell nature of the the alliance. What was what was interesting about that to you in terms of your research? That was literally. I was about to jump in and say that uh, this is the same way that like real life extremists works, uh, groups work. Um, so you have this sort of idea of like ISIS came out of Al Qaeda. They were a, a cell a fracture group of, of them. Um, you have fracture groups within ISIS now. There's still fracture groups within Al Qaeda um, because you um, just like the Rebel Alliance, you have this one unified goal, but everyone has a different idea about how they want to get there. Uh, so like in the case of um, ISIS, they're a lot more extremist than Al Qaeda. They want um, to reach their goals now, while Al-Qaeda is like, okay, well, we can give it 10 or 15 years, and ISIS is like, no, we want, you know, our our caliphate now, um, and this is the same way with um, Saul Guerrero's group uh, and your regular rebel alliance. Saul is a lot more radical, he wants to see the empire fall now, where Mon Motha is a lot more calculated in her um, moves towards that goal. So I want to flip over and just play a quick clip right here to set up the rest of to set up the next point, which we've we've touched on a little bit. One of the most interesting parts of Rogue One and, and what we've gotten within the last 12 to 15 months in Star Wars is this bigger picture of the Rebel Alliance, this fracture, if you will, between sects. And I think you saw an awesome, awesome clip from Saw in that Rebels trailer before the panel where he says, you know, if you want to run uh, all of Mon Mothma's errands, that's fine. Go do that. Or you can do something that really matters. So what do you guys... You know, was meaningful stood out about this this division, or do you just think Saw is garbage and whatever? Morgana did no wrong. <laughs> I think that the alliance doesn't have a clear chain of command or structure, and that because of that, you have groups that say, "Well, you know, instead of all of us working together to figure out how we can compromise and get as much done as we can, Saw is running off and doing his own thing." And in the end, he does some good. I mean, he accomplishes stuff for the cause, but he also, I hope everybody's seen Rogue One. Like, yeah. It doesn't end well for, for him or his group. And perhaps if they'd all worked together instead of having a core group of politicians with no clear chain of command or organizational structure that I can tell, then, you know, maybe they could have worked together to have started earlier and not risked so much and not relied on a group running off and just doing it themselves with no backup until the end. And I, I think it's the, the, the part right before that clip that you didn't see where there's argument about whether the Death Star actually exists, uh, whether it's actually a threat, is, is really an interesting point to, to kind of ponder on because the folks that are talking there, these aren't like senators or whatever you're the the female that spoke at the very beginning of that that's the minister of education the two others that speak the death star what is this nonsense Mm. you're talking like the these are our cabinet ministers to to mon mothma folks that uh, assist the high command and so what you really see there you know what i drew from it is with without a defined structure without a, a plan in place for how to govern 
this idea that uh, they're going to be civilian led and avoid the problems of the military problems can creep into that because you get the division that you saw around that table there, which nobody can agree on anything. There's a, a massive threat and it takes kind of an impassioned speech and really a rogue special forces mission to really get some action done. And, and ultimately, we can all agree that Admiral Raddus was the real hero in all of that, which is why, if you haven't seen, there's there seems to be a, a new Moncal cruiser named after him, the Raddus, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, you know, so it's it was really fascinating. I, I absolutely love the, the addition in the politics that we see because it's not this unified movement that's like, hey, we'll take down the empire and we agree on the way to do it. It's it's real now. So I want to move on and we'll. We're going to accelerate through through this part, unfortunately. Battle of Scarif. This was awesome on screen, but had some problems. Like the rebels had some issues here. Like, was this were they were they snatching victory from the jaws of defeat above that planet? I um, um I uh when I was thinking about that, and you know, hopefully not to take too long on it, but uh the the thing, and it goes back to the empires, you know. Bigger is better. Here is how we fight always. It reminds me of, of you know, how the, the British fought in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is how we do it. We go lines, we overwhelm with mass, mass and numbers. And then, and one thing that we see always through Star Wars is that, is that the rebel of the Alliance or the New Republic or whoever is fighting the Empire, the way that they win is they're agile. They change, they adapt, they... Um, they use what, you know, use the weight of the empire against it. Um, the specifically when, the, you know, how they snatch snatch victory from the jaws of defeat was just, you know, brilliant. All of a sudden, hey, we and the right ship, the right ship to get things done at the time. Um, Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I. Janine, I wanted to put this to you. You talk about an agile force. I mean, you know, understandably, the, their alliance is fighting with what they have. Uh, strategically, are, are they making the best use of their resources? Well, I mean, we, we all fight. Every, every military in our world fights with the force that they have. You, you have the force that you want, that you plan, that you know there's no way in hell you're ever going to get. Um, so you fight with the one you got. And... Um, as far as the tactics of this, I mean, we are just seeing a teeny tiny glimpse of the battle. And given that they didn't actually have any time to plan, it, it was one of the, this is where, this is where having each of those individuals, those leaders, those commanders, and, and having trained them to lead and think for themselves is so incredibly important. Because you have, in the Marine Corps, we have a term called your uh, tactical corporal. And the entire thought being, <coughs> the smallest unit in the Marine Corps is what's known as a fire team. And it's basically four Marines you got a corporal who's in charge of it, and usually like two lance corporals and a, and a PFC. And the idea is that those four Marines understand what the commander's intent, this captain who's their company commander, or the lieutenant colonel who's the battalion commander, they understand, my job is to take that hill. They get separated from their battalion somehow, their company somehow, but their job is to take that hill. And they're going to find a way, in the absence of any sort of instruction, to take that hill. So I think that's what you see very well over the Battle of Scarab. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got very clearly the commander who's in charge, bless you, who's exploiting all the gaps and seams that he can find, but he has given, so while he is rank-wise in command, he has ceded positional authority to the folks on the ground to where you've basically got 
this former imperial who, as of like two days prior, has turned over and become a rebel, who's calling the shots because Jin and Cassian are telling him what they need, and he's calling the shots, and the admiral's going, "Yep, that's what we're going to do." <laughs> and that is absolutely the the brilliant showing of exactly the the type of force that's able to think for themselves and, and maneuver and change. Whereas you see the Imperials and they're just behind the curve the entire time because they have their rigid, rigid rank structure and nobody is willing to do anything. And I won't tell you which branch of the military in America does this, but you know. <laughs> I, I will just say that when I was in Djibouti in command of my teeny little squadron, hey now. <laughs> I was able to do things. I was able to sign off on flight schedules and do things as a major that took a, a three-star general in this other branch to approve, which, which, uh, so we frequently got a lot of missions that needed to be done very quickly. It's the Coast Guard, all right. <laughs> all the generals okay. of the Coast Guard. I'm just saying. So I'm going to keep going. I think it's, it's interesting we talk about, uh, you know, how they've adapted to fight, because this is very much connected to, to real war world strategy. They don't have the, the capital ships to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And I realize that Mon Cal Cruiser in the middle is not the profundity, but <laughs> until somebody can do it, I don't know. But you, you see, you, you do see, if you if you re-watch that scene, and not just because it's awesome, you can really see some, some actual tactics there. Because in the middle, the profundity is sitting there. It's not going right up and, and doing a broadside with either of the two Star Destroyers that are there. It's got it's positioned in the center, command and control. It's surrounded by some of the other corvettes and frigates that they do have. And then these triangles represent fighter squadrons, right? So blue squadron, red squadron, gold squadron, the Y-wings and X-wings that you see. You see the blue ones in a defensive pattern defending the fleet, right? And then you see attack squadrons that are sent out to do damage more agilely to the rest of the fleet. And, you know, we talk about fighting and adapting to what you have and the connections to World War II. Think about the Pacific Fleet in the wake of Pearl Harbor, right? We've had all of our uh, battleships, these huge ships that we had relied upon, spent lots of money on, knocked out in an instant. And then the Pacific Fleet does what? Well, we can't just magically create new battleships, so we have to pivot. It took time, but that led to the advent of these fast carrier strike groups where you know the carrier doesn't have the ability to walk right up next to a, a you know another battleship and trade fire but what it does have is force projection right so it sends these fighters out to do the dirty work to provide a defensive screen and to attack and that revolutionized naval combat to this day uh, you know there's a, a there's a carrier strike group modern day right what's what's right at the middle there the, the two carriers and then the, the supporting ships form that screen. So let's let's move on. We've we've kind of talked about the the uh, you know pre or the the war period. I want to shift to the fall of the empire here. Um, what's significant to me is that I, I had this concept of how the war sort of would end, and then everything that's come out sort of went against that. What, to, to you guys, um, what has stood out the most about? what we've learned about how this, uh, how the civil war wound down and ended. Everything went wrong at Jakku. <laughs> well, I, and, th and that's a good question. So, you know, for those that haven't, you know, maybe read any of the, the additional materials, I mean, was Jakku this traditional fight or was there something more to it? I, my, I, I, I actually just finished, finished reading that. That was, uh, that's battle Jakku. Yes. 
Um, and the way that that it that battle ended was it was hard to read as a as a scientist. But um, when the tiny ship has a tiny a really big rope and pulls down a star destroyer, okay, cool. That's neat, um, and that's not how gravity works. Just press that combat, button. But I did, and then I got there, and then I got there, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's where the yeah, yeah, space gravity. Wait, what? <laughs> yes, um, and I lost my train of thought. Yeah, so, if, if you played, if you played the uh, the Battlefront video game, there's a map, the Battle of Jakku. And you can actually see that this Super Star Destroyer crashing at the beginning of the the level. That's what they call the Ravager. And you get to read about how that ship crashes. It gets slung with a, a tractor beam and pulled down into the Jakku atmosphere. What was interesting to me is Jakku was a setup, right? So Jakku was not this final stand for the Empire that, you know, this meeting of the military minds that happened. And they said, hey, let's pick this backwater planet to, to challenge the rebellion, uh, right? It's, you know, it's this grand plan, you know, and I, I wanted to, to get you guys to touch on, whoops. The can I go back? The contingency and you know how that sort of shaped your perspective of the empire. So, you know, if you if one of you guys wants to take explaining sort of what it is and, and what that means for the overall story, I, I can do that because wait, man. Um, again, the, with Palpatine, you know, you see him uh, develop all the way, you know, through the Star Wars now canon, and I saw him develop before in Legends and whatever. But he's always thinking ahead, right? Okay, what do I need to either get more power or keep power or whatever? You, did, you didn't see, I didn't see it coming that he was going to be that so selfish that he set up this thing, the contingency. If the empire can't protect its emperor, it doesn't deserve to exist. That's basically what he said. So he sets this up even before he became emperor where the, he had these observatories. There were more than the one at Jakku, right? They were, they, yeah, they were all looking out looking out uh, of the galaxy and the unknown regions and so on and so forth. And you get uh, rats and... Uh, rats. Yeah, exactly, right? So one of these observatories was at Jakku, and his, his thing, and the Emperor's thing was, if I die, the Empire has to be done, but we're going to set up this contingency to start another Empire elsewhere, free of whatever was capable of killing me, Emperor Palpatine. Good, good summary? Okay. Yeah, that's sort of the inherent flaw with this top-down system, right? So the emperor dies. I think the you know, like Chuck Wendig or not, the fascinating thing about that trilogy of aftermath books is you see the real fallout from that because it's it's not just you know the the, the underlying story current, but when the empire falls at Jakku or excuse me at, at Endor, you have this idea perpetrate like commanders don't know what to do. They don't have a long-term plan in place. The plan was crush the rebels and generally make everybody scared of each other. Uh, you know, the emperor dies and, and folks are out there that don't believe that he's dead. You've got warlords that develop. Well, they stop with that propaganda poster. I mean, they kind of delved into that with that game Star Wars Uprising, which started out entertaining and then <laughs> level crunching was painful. But they stopped, uh, they stopped the message of the emperor's death from reaching a lot of the outlying systems, like to cutting off communications and everything. Um, Basically, about to that. The other note I have is that Ray Sloan deserves to be queen. Of the mm. and, and my problem with Ray Sloan and also Hux and Rex. Careful. I don't, it's okay. Careful. I don't know why these writers keep using names that sound the same. Rax, oh, Rax and Hux, Brendan and uh, Brendel, yeah. and Ray and come on, Ray? 
because they won't because they won't let us use any of the same names. They say it's confusing. <sighs> oh, you'd rather it be. <laughs> Listen, because listen. apparently you can't have two Brias in the same galaxy, is all I'm saying. <laughs> One of them is legendary, okay? Uh, but it goes back to the point of, at one point, the Empire... So the Empire was this vessel for Palpatine to gain and consolidate power. But it shifts from being a, hey, we're a force that, that keeps the peace and brings you know order to the galaxy to... Really, it becomes our entire purpose in life is to crush the rebellion. And and that is single-minded purpose. Everything was going to that. And when you have something where that's its entire existence, it's going to end one way or the other. Either they're going to crush the rebellion or the rebellion's going to crush them. But regardless, if they had come out on top of the rebellion, the Empire would have had to have become... They would have either had to seek out a new foe, because mm-hmm. that's what their entire I- ideology has become and built on, or they would have to dismantle and disband their their military because otherwise they would turn inward and just completely self-destruct much like the new republic ended up kind of doing yeah, yeah. actually it just occurred to me it's and now it makes more sense of why the emperor had those contingency plans for when he went away because the only other war he had really fought in was one where he was playing both sides like he had control over that mm. situation so i think this was his way like i don't think it's really far off to say yeah palpatine's control freak um, so I think that was uh, enthusiast. So the last, the last thing that I want to touch on before I turn it, open it up to questions. If you have a question or a comment, you can line up real quick. Is just the interesting way that this this conflict ended. It didn't end with a total and complete defeat militarily. You have, you know, basically a a detente, a. a a peace treaty between the empire's remnants and the new republic. So, uh, you know, if you have this idea that the empire was crushed and the rebellion was was having parades across the galaxy, it's not how the war ended, right? It's more like Korea, where they confine the imperial remnant to a certain place uh, within the galaxy, a certain core wor- uh, number of core worlds, put some restrictions on, you know, their their remaining military force, and you know, it kind of led the way for the, the First Order to be able to exist. Go ahead. So I'm watching Rogue One, and there's a point where there's really, during the Battle Scarif, there's this really seriously kick-ass uh, Ewing pilot who just happens to be female, and I couldn't help but it reminded me of you. I will say when I saw her on screen, I cheered and started crying. I mean, I was already crying a lot because I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> yes, I cheered and cried more. Excellent. The, what, one thing I also noticed from Rogue One is during the, the political scene, which is usually when I used to go, get up and go to the bathroom because it's like a slightly boring scene, but during that scene, they, what happens at, at the scene is they're discussing intelligence. These spies have brought the, 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 the politicians intelligence, actionable intelligence, to do about a certain threat, and these get people, they can or they can't seem to decide what to do. What's, what do you think is the role of intelligence in Star Wars, and where, where does that come from? Yeah. No, it's a great it's a great question though it's just we don't yeah I, I think it's I, I think we just briefly we see that's one of the alliance's problems they have a sort of a, a half-baked maybe two-thirds baked intelligence network ahsoka gets brought in to the rebellion in part because they lack an intelligence network she becomes fulcrum and you see that they're still struggling with this because you know they can't even get uh you know action on real legit intelligence that they do glean and their other their other major i think uh, source of intelligence ended up being Maydeen. 
So that that helped out a lot. I don't know. Go ahead. So uh, my question is more about the first order. That it. <laughs> so it seems like I mean people give Kylo Ren a lot of flack for being a uh, Darth Vader fanboy, but it seems a lot like the first order is like not only are they like we're an Empire fanboy, but we're gonna do it better and stronger, and we're the we're the kids of these people who failed, so we're not gonna fail. But where in God's name did they get the money for any of this? So kind of Bloodline talks about that in a bit, because um, you have both the centrist and the populist, uh, and some of the centrist worlds are planets like Arcanus, which is actually where uh, Commandant Brendel Hux, who is the worst, ran the Imperial <laughs> Academy. Um, so from there, it's we don't have a ton yet as to how the First Order was really formed, but we are definitely getting more. Um, but I think it's fair to say that there are certainly people in high positions of power who were uh, Imperial sympathizers and who now support the First Order and they're aware of it and they're able to fund some of the money towards them. Yeah, and actually more in Bloodline, uh, uh, the Maxine Warriors um, that were kind of like an abortive first try at a First Order, but they made the big mistake of putting all their explosives in one place. All right, rapid fire time, because we've only got a couple minutes. One minute. Easy question. Uh, is the built-in problems you guys have discussed in terms of the imperial military structure a feature or a bug, given that the whole goal of it is to help Palpatine, who is powered by fear and hate? What? Feature. Feature. Excellent. The thing that interested me about the Emperor is that he built up the Empire basically out of completely selfish reasons. It's basically a tool for him, mm-hmm. but it seems like the First Order was built out of the true believers of the Empire, and I just wanted to get a sense of how that changes things in terms of how they work and their modus operandi, I guess. Or are they still about as cynical as they were before? They still love triangles. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other panel. That's a very good question, though. We're the true believers of Scarier, actually. Yeah, I agree. Alright, so Force Awakens. Why is it when we discover a new Death Star, we can throw like 20 X-Wings at it? They didn't have like a some Amon Cal or something that we together. Yeah. I think part of it also is that like there wasn't really much of a fleet, and a lot of the fleet had just kind of gone boom uh, for the Republic fleet. I mean, I have theories about that that can't entirely be the Republic fleet, but they didn't really have the funds, and like Leia was trying it, to fund it. Just, it seemed pretty urgent. Yeah. If you had Poe Dameron, you would send him basically alone, too. Yeah, okay. yes, That's a exactly. whole other panel, but Poe Dameron's flying is so wrong and so bad, and it makes me mad every time I see it. <laughs> Only one shot. You don't fly with two hands. <laughs> and actually, in the, po- in the Poe Dameron comic, there is a whole thing about how the Resistance does not have money, and they're trying, like, they don't have fuel anymore. So they might not even have the, they have the ships, they might not even have the fuel to fly them. All right, All right time for a prize drawing. So the numbers are on the back of your seat. Check them. They're not necessarily in order. We're going to go close to...